Good morning, Florida Bible. How are you doing this morning? What a great praise time. What a great time to just connect with the Lord this morning, wasn't it? How awesome was that? We're going to begin an entirely new series this morning that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, entitled Encountering Evil. You know, as the little video clip said, we don't have to go looking for evil. It comes looking for us, doesn't it? And it seems in the day and the culture that we live in, it's coming more frequently and it's coming more dramatically with a lot greater implications. Just in the last month, we've had another horrible shooting in a school where 20 innocent children are murdered along with some of their faculty and educators. Received an email yesterday advising me that one of our pastors a man of God, one of our Christian brothers in Yemen, dismissed his house services just the other day and came out from the service and a group of thugs met him and took him and threw him in their van, went to his house, collected his wife and his three children, drove them to a remote part of the city and put a bullet in the back of each one of their heads. Why? Because they talked about Jesus Christ. I was helping set up the chairs yesterday. One of the men helping said, Pastor, have you heard of what's happened in the news here in South Florida in the last few days? And I said, said not really. I haven't really caught up with it. And he said, he said, in the last few days, it was three or four women uh, had committed crimes and, and forced the police to use deadly force against them. I mean, we've heard about men doing that for eons, but, but women? Stella, my wife, went to a luncheon Friday and she came back and, and told me about it. And, and the theme of the luncheon was, was a, a group of people, and they were not just church people, they were business professionals here in South Florida who had gathered together to learn more and, and to take action against human trafficking. And, and, and she said the speaker at this event got up, again, a woman locally, and, and recalled how when she was five years old, her mother sold her to a group of men. She, she remembered she said she remembered my mom outside talking to these guys, and all of a sudden they came into the car where I was, and they stuck a needle in my arm, and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, she said there were strange men groping me. She says at nine years old, I entered the active world of prostitution. She said at 11 years old, I became a female pimp and was bringing other young women into the world of prostitution. And she began to talk about how, how this is, is not very uncommon here in South Florida, right in our part of the world. And talking about those who are in domestic slavery as servants brought from other countries with a promise of a better life only to be enslaved. Now, we are horrified by these headlines and, and these stories, but, but here's what I want you to understand and what we're going to really talk about in this series is that those stories those headlines are exactly that. They're headlines. And, and we, although horrified by them, celebrate some distance from them. They, they haven't happened to us, and maybe someone here has had something horrible happen to you. But here's the truth of the matter is. The truth of the matter is this. You are encountering evil every single day. It's a lot more intimately connected to your life than you would imagine. Al-Qaeda doesn't have to come knocking on your door. You don't have to be the victim of some heinous criminal offense. 
to have evil working at you and gnawing away at you and eating away at you every single day, and I promise you it is. What we're going to do in this series is we are going to unmask that evil. And then we are going to discover how it insidiously works in our lives. And then we are going to learn and celebrate the fact that God has given us some very powerful resources to resist it so that it doesn't have to take us down. The existence of evil in the world, for some, is proof that God doesn't exist. I was just reading this week that, that there is a group, a community in, in the, uh, the community of neuroscience who now declare and are believing that evil doesn't exist at all. They're saying, in fact, all these abnormal behaviors and destructive behaviors are not the cause of some force of evil in the world, but they are malfunctions or malformities of the human brain. This argument that evil demonstrates that God doesn't exist goes far back in time. Historically speaking, the first person who was cited as to raise the awareness of this issue of if evil exists, God can exist, was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus's argument went something like this. If an all-powerful and perfectly good God exists, then evil does not. Two, there is evil in the world, so therefore, an all-powerful and perfectly good God does not exist. Now, over time, there have been many spin-offs of this particular foundation, of this philosophy. And it goes like this, that if God is omnipotent, as Christians claim that God is, then why would God not have used his omnipotent power to keep evil from entering into the world? They say, now, if God really is omniscient, all-knowing, like believers claim that he is, then God would have known every conceivable way that evil could have entered into the world and he would have prevented it. If God really were omnipresent everywhere at one time, he could have stomped it out wherever it might have raised its head. If God really is omnibenevolent to people and he really is a God of love, how could this God of love ever have allowed evil to come in the world and victimize human beings the way it has through centuries of time? It's a tough question. The premise behind these arguments is this, that there is no conceivable, legitimate reason that God would have permitted evil, and therefore God doesn't exist. But I want to challenge that premise, because I think all of these statements are built on a false premise. So what possible legitimate reason could exist where God would allow for evil. We could spend days on this. There's a lot of layers to it, but let me give you two words to consider. The two words are free will. Free will. And what's free will? Well, there's a lot of definitions. I happen to really like what Wikipedia said about it. Wikipedia says, free will asserts that the existence of free being is something of tremendous value. In other words, that people having the ability to choose and make decisions is a valuable thing. And I think we'd agree with that if you think about it. I mean, just think, 
if there is a God and God created all of us, God could have chosen to create us and stamped us out just like each other, that we were programmed to be absolutely obedient to him every single time in every single situation, and, and that really, we just kind of, we're, we're robots and, or, or droids or something going through life. But what kind of an experience would that be? How enriching, how fulfilling would that existence be? Not very. Wikipedia goes on to say, because with free will comes the ability to make morally significant choices and to enter into authentic loving relationships. See, God understood that if he were to make a creation that he could enjoy an authentic loving relationship with, he had to also create in that creation the ability to choose to love him or to hate him, to embrace him or to reject him, to obey him or to rebel against him. See, God is not obsessed with ruling over that which he has created. God is obsessed in establishing an intimate, loving relationship with all that he has created. See, God could have made you any way he wanted to make you, but he chose to make you a free being. He chose to give you the choice of loving and embracing him or rejecting him. Free will. Now, with that thought in mind, maybe we could enter into the first segment of this series. And what I want to talk to you about this morning and that is the source of all evil. The source of all evil. In the New Testament section of our Bible, the first four manuscripts are called the Gospels. And basically, they're, they're accounts of the life of Jesus. In the fourth one of those manuscripts, we call the book of John, we see a certain episode in Jesus' life. At the end of chapter 9 of, of, of that manuscript, Jesus is, is talking about the spiritual blindness that his own countrymen, who are the chosen people of God, the Jews, are walking in. And he's talking about the fact that they're not listening to the right voice. He, he, he presents himself in the beginning of chapter 10 as a good shepherd. He says, I'm a good shepherd. I care for my sheep. I watch out for my sheep. I, I, I'll lay down my life for my sheep. But he says, they're not listening to me. In fact, he says, all of those they're listening to are robbers and thieves who are leading them astray. And then Jesus says something profound. He switches gears very subtly. And he says in verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. In that statement, he identifies the source of all evil. In this particular episode, in this instance, he identifies as the thief. Other names for him are Satan, the devil, Lucifer, prince of the air, prince of darkness. The source of all evil. And in fact, the apostle Paul, and by the way, so many people think that, that the manuscripts in the Bible were written by fishermen and people who weren't intelligent. You know, the apostle Paul was one of the most learned and educated men who have ever lived in that time. And in a letter that he wrote to a church he founded in the city of Ephesus, he talks about what Jesus has just alluded to. 
And he says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our, our struggle that we're, we're in today isn't against people who snap and are deranged and, and commit these heinous acts and crimes and things like that. He said, there is a much more sinister force behind all of that. And he goes on to say, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, he's saying that there is a much more sinister force at work in our life, bringing about all these headlines of evil and bringing about destruction in our life than just people who have kind of got off track or some, someone who has a malformity of the brain or, or, or someone that has drifted away from culture or embraced some cultic ideal. He's talking about Satan, who is the source of all evil. Now, Satan has caused us to view him in two extremes. One view he has led us to view him is, is like a comic character. I, I remember, and some of you are old enough to remember, a comedian named Flip Wilson. And, and, and he was got catapulted into prominence with a little phrase and a little antic that he would say. He'd say, oh, the devil made me do it. How many remember that, huh? The devil made me do it. And we all caught on to that. I, I remember using it. And you, if you would do anything on, in the gray area at all, you'd just kind of smirk and say, oh, the devil made me do it, you know. And we've turned him into this kind of, this comical character. This almost buffoon. Oh, he's mischievous. The devil. There he goes again. Oh, that devil. <laughs> truth of the matter, he's not a comic character at all. But he wants us to see him in that way. You know why? Because even, even those who are trying to push any certain new cultural uh, agenda or new alternative lifestyle, they understand this, that if you can get people laughing at something that they formerly resisted, it will desensitize them, and ultimately they will see that as far less threatening than it really is. And so Satan wants us laughing about him. He wants, oh, that little boy, he, that devil got my life again. <laughs> that guy, he's just out. Now, on the other extreme, he's pictured himself and portrayed himself as this ugly, heinous monster character with red flesh and spiked teeth and insidious and sinister yellow eyes and horns coming out of him. A character that there's no way in the world we would want to join forces with, that we would want to embrace and see, he's taking these extremes to try to get us to see him in those extremes. And either one we're going to reject. It's either as a buffoon, a, a, a caricature, a comic, or as a monster that we would never allow into our lives. But the truth of the matter is he's neither. And that's why he's so effective. You say, well, how do you know? Well, God has given us a snapshot of who he is. In the Old Testament section of our Bible again, a group of prophets that God had used to speak for him and to his people and against things are listed there. And one of those prophets is a prophet named Ezekiel. And God leads Ezekiel to speak out against a wicked human king, the king of the city of Tyre. And so when we get to Ezekiel chapter 28, that's what he's doing. God has given him words to say, and boy, he's just ranting and railing and, and passing judgment against this wicked king. But then all of a sudden, kind of in mid-sentence, it all transitions. And it transitions from God railing out against an, a, a wicked human king to now the source of all evil. 
And look what it says. Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in the latter parts of verse 12. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. That's why, and that's why we know a transition has taken place. We know no human king was ever in the garden of Eden. Look what he says about him. Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and your mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. In other words, God now is describing this character that we now know is Satan as the devil. His original name was Lucifer. That means son of the dawn, son of the morning. He said, when you were created, you were the pinnacle of all my angelical angels. He goes on to say, you were appointed as a guardian cherub. There are different ranks of angels. Just like there's different classes in man and different positions that we hold. And the lowest rank was just the angels, the servant angels. And then you had the seraphims. And they were the messengers of God. And they were the ones that sing praises to God around the throne. And then you had the cherubs. They're the highest. And of those are archangels. And this guy was possibly the highest in the entire angelic realm. He said, you were on the holy mount of God. In other words, you walked right with me in heaven. Everywhere I went, you were... You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Now listen. This evil influence that is invading our lives on a daily basis is not a cartoon that you're going to laugh about. He wants you to think that. And he's not this, this physically horrible monster that you would be repelled by. The fact of the matter is he's a creature of beauty, astounding beauty. And astounding wisdom and power and resource. That's why when he speaks, it's enticing. That's why when he causes our eyes to see, it's attractive. Goes on to say, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In other words, got to looking in the mirror at himself, got to listening to what the other angels were saying about him, said, man, I'm special. I'm beautiful. I'm gorgeous. Look at this majestic being that I am. So finally... God says, so I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. You thought you were so powerful. You thought you were so big. I made a spectacle of you. With a word, I banished you from the kingdom of heaven, and I threw you down to the earth. Listen, this source of all evil is no comic strip character. He's no Hollywood movie monster. He is real. And he has had thousands and thousands of years to study you and me and those like us. And he knows exactly. And he will use all of his power and all of his influence against us. See, Jesus talks about what God had revealed to Ezekiel in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Now listen, that's really profound, that statement. Why? Because now when we study and as we look at what Jesus says about this character, this source of all evil, understand he's not speaking philosophically. He's not thinking or speaking theologically. He's speaking out of firsthand experience. He knows him. He saw this. He witnessed all this. Why? Because he is the son of God. He is the co-creator of the angelic kingdom. And so when he speaks about Satan, trust me, he knows what he's talking about. And what does he say? He says, the thief. He says, you want to know who he is? He's a thief. You want to know he is? He's not someone that you would willingly invite into your house, into your family, to be around your kids, to go on vacation with. He is a thief. And he goes on to say, who is singular of mind, of purpose, and in passion. He says he comes only. He's not just this little mischievous kind of presence in our life. <laughs> the devil, <laughs> you caught me again, you sly dog, you. <laughs> He's got a singular purpose, and he never grows tired of it. He never is distracted from it. He never leaves or, or takes a break. He's of singular mind, and he's of singular purpose. Jesus says there's only one reason that he exists, and there's only one agenda that he has, and that is to steal and to kill and destroy. Now, we kind of get the steal part of that equation, don't we? Because I'll bet you every one of us here, we, we could share stories and experiences in our life and circumstances where we know that Satan got in and stole something. And that's such a feeling of, of violation. I don't know if you've ever had anyone break into your house. Stella and I have had it happen on a couple occasions. And boy, you do, you feel violated. You know, people, someone broke into your house and, and they stole stuff and they ransacked the house and tipped drawers over and all that and you just feel, you, you, you just feel insecure and you feel unsafe. And, and boy, Satan's done that to all of us. He's, he's stolen something from us, probably on numerous occasions. And, and, but sometimes we think that that's the whole thing. That occasionally he's going to come in and meddle in our life and occasionally he's going to come in and mess, us around, mess with us a little bit. But no, 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 no. He comes only to steal. And he's doing it every single day, and you don't even know it. But he's not satisfied just to mess around with us. It says, and he comes to kill. That's a whole lot different. It's one thing for someone to break into your house and steal your belongings. And yes, that's unsettling and creates a, a feeling of insecurity in, in that. But it's a whole other thing if someone dies. The last time our house got broken into, my son Peter came in right as the event was happening. And he walked in the front door. And there were, was one of the thieves looking at him. And to this day, I thank you, God, so much for protecting him. I don't care about my stuff. But anyhow, Peter's a pretty big and imposing character. And so they were afraid of him rather than him being afraid of them. And they fled. But others of you may, in your family or in your circle of friends, have known folks who became the victim of thieves who murdered those in the house. That ratchets it up a whole level of the level. And listen, Jesus says about he who he knows intimately, he said he's a thief and he's not settled with just stealing from you. He's not settling just for messing with your life. He wants to kill you. He wants to kill your family. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill you. But then, 
unbelievably, Jesus continues. And he says, and to destroy. Now, wait a minute. You just said steal and kill. Kill's kind of it, right? I mean, that kind of ends it. No, it doesn't. Because Jesus understands that Satan's desire does not just exist in this life, but his malicious intent is for eternity. He doesn't just want to mess you up. He doesn't just want to kill your life right now. He wants to eternally destroy you in whatever way he can. That's the source of all evil. Now, we might ask the question, why is Satan so malevolent towards us? Now, I understand that we have a lot of folks where English is a second language here today, and so what's that word malevolent? Well, what it really means is vicious ill will. So why does Satan have such vicious ill will towards us? Now, we, we get it. There was some point in time there was this, this rebellion uh, by Satan against God. And, and in other portions of the Bible, by the way, it tells us that it wasn't just Satan. It was a third of the angels that joined his rebellion. That's the demonic world that we talk about today. But we get that. So there's this cosmic battle between good and evil out there. But how did we end up in the crosshairs of this evil source? Of this, this evil being who only wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. What's he got against me? What's he got against you? Why are we in the middle of all this? Well, let me explain why. And maybe you'll understand more why he hates you so much. Another one of the original 12 apostles, Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, wrote a manuscript that's in the New Testament part of our Bibles that we call the, 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 manu- the book of 1 Peter. And in that manuscript, he says this, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And I know that's kind of going right over a lot of our heads. And so let me bring it down to layman's terms. Basically, what Peter is saying is this. He's saying in this string, in this chain of prophets that God had revealed certain things about the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Savior, coming of the Christ. Now, now understand that when the Bible speaks about Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name, okay? That's not his last name. It's a title. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, So it's not Jesus Christ as his name, it's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, the Redeemer of man. That's what we're talking about. And what Peter's saying is that, you know, all along, God only gave these little snapshots, these little little bits of information about how everything was radically going to change when Messiah finally came. How man was going to go from a relationship where he had to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. He had to kill animals and he had to take them to the temple. It was a bloody, messy, horrible kind of experience. To a new relationship with God where God extends his grace and his mercy to where all we do is receive and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I said, now, they didn't understand all that. They were trying to figure it out. How does this work? Now, then he says something, again, which is profound. He inspires Peter to say this. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, the angels are asking the same thing. What, what is going on here? 
what, what is this grace? What is this mercy? What is this salvation thing? What is this Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross thing? What is that all about? Now, why are they so confused in God's relationship with man? Well, in another one of those Old Testament manuscripts, written by yet another Old Testament prophet, this one is the prophet Isaiah. And the same kind of thing happens with Isaiah as happened with Ezekiel. God now is ranting against another wicked earthly king. This time he's the king of Babylon. And so God is is pronouncing judgment through this prophet on this wicked king. But just like he did with Ezekiel, about midway through he switches gears. And now he is speaking and railing out not against the wicked earthly king, but now again he's railing out against the source of all evil, against Satan. And we find it in this manuscript in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, God is describing now and revealing what happened that Ezekiel had talked about. What led God to banish Satan from heaven? And he says, beginning in verse 13, Isaiah chapter 14, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God are all the other angelic and, and, and heavenly beings. He said, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost height of the sacred mountain." I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. Now, here's what he says. I will make myself like the most high. In other words, he got all caught up in his splendor that God had created with him, all caught up in his power, all caught up in his beauty. And he said, I am going to stage a coup. I am going to rebel against God. I will make myself God. I'm going to kick him off the throne, and I'm going to sit on the throne. I'm going to be above all the angelic and, and heavenly realm. I will be God. Now, that's what caused God to banish him from heaven. Now, how many of you would agree with me that God was just in, in what he did, huh? How, how many think that God, it's okay when God, if God, you know, someone says, I'm going to be you, and I'm going to over, that he can deal, deal severely with him, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? Now, hold that emotional thought. And let's go to a different Old Testament manuscript. This one, the very first one in the Bible, called the book of Genesis. Now, in that book, it describes God's creation of the world and God's creation of man. God creates man as the final, the pinnacle of all his creation. Formed in the likeness of God, he creates them, both male and female. Now, after he creates them, he tells them, he said, listen, all this that I have created is for you to enjoy, and it's for you to, to rule over. You're, you're the boss. You're over all the animal kingdom. You're over the plant kingdom. You're over everything I've created. You manage it for me. You're my, you're my, my, my CEO. He said, now, there's only one prohibition I give you. He said, there's a tree that's in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, now, that one tree in the garden... He said, don't eat off the fruit of that. He said, don't, don't touch that. Don't, don't eat that fruit. He says, in fact, that the day you eat that fruit, you're going to die. And he said, no, that's it. Go enjoy life. Reproduce, replenish the earth. Enjoy everything I've created. It's all yours. Now, if you've been a student of the Bible or you've gone to Sunday school, you, you, you probably know the story. One day Eve is, is out there in the garden and she's too near that tree. 
The Bible describes it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, the Satan now possessing the form of a serpent starts speaking to her and says, you will not surely die. Then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Read it with me. And you will be like God. Read it again. And you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now think about how sly he is. Was he lying to her? No. He wasn't lying a bit. He said, yeah, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. The problem was Adam and Eve didn't understand that that knowledge was extremely counterproductive to them. Was extremely counterproductive to the human race. But he didn't lie to them. Now, it goes on to say, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for wisdom, in other words, it will make me like God. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. See, we we throw this whole thing on Eve. Well, Adam was there. They defied God. And what happened? Immediately, they knew the difference between good and evil. Think about it. What, what's the Bible say? They hid themselves from the presence of God. Now, why did they hide themselves? Well, one thing was their shame, and that's the reason Adam gave. He said, we were naked, and we didn't want to come in front of you. But don't you remember what God said? He said, the day you eat it, you're going to die. And don't you know that they thought that's exactly what happened? And don't you know that Satan thought that's what exactly was going to happen? But what happened? Instead, God came down, and God began to pass consequences for the rebellion. And he said to the serpent, you're going to be the, the most hated of all the creatures on the earth. You're going to crawl on your belly. And, and, and people are going to hate you. And, and how many agree that we don't really like snakes? Huh? Tastes like chicken? <laughs> That's the only way I might like it with a little Tabasco sauce. But then he says to the woman, now, bearing children is going to not be a pleasant thing for you. It's, it's, you're going to have labor now. It's going to hurt. Ladies, moms, true? Okay, all right, so we, we can attest to that. Then he also says, and, and your desire is going to be for your husband. Now, what does that mean? I wish it meant that you're just going to love him and want to be with him all the time. But no, it meant that there's going to be conflict in the relationship now. And that's why those of us who are married, we don't always get along. We don't always see eye to eye, you know. There's a little power struggles, you know. It's, it all goes back to this. Then he says to man, he says, now, now you're going to have to work the ground. Now it's going to be hard labor. Now you're going to work it by the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be the enjoyable experience it was and I created you with that you've enjoyed up to this point. It's all going to change now. Guys, we've got to go back to work t- tomorrow. <sighs> huh? And then, Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, it says, So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. What did God do? He banished him. Now, just before he banished him, here's what God did. God, after passing all that judgment, or during the middle of passing all that judgment, God told him, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send someone into the world that's going to crush the head of Satan. And at that very moment, at the very onset of our rebellion, God promised us forgiveness. On the other hand, Satan, who arguably could be said who did the same thing, I will make myself like God, 
receive no grace, receive no mercy from God. And in fact, the Bible tells us about his final demise in the book of Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. No second chance. No mere banishment from heaven. Eternal death. Eternal dying. Eternal suffering. And we ask the question, why is Satan so malevolent towards us? Why do the angels desire to look into this whole thing and this whole relationship God has with man? Because from a logical perspective, it's completely unfair. And yet from God's perspective, he has made a creation that he doesn't want to rule over, but that he's always wanted to develop an intimate, loving relationship with. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. The thief, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows him personally. He knows his capabilities. He knows his intentions. He knows his strategy. He says he's singular of mind and purpose and passion. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I don't want to leave you there. He goes on to say, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus said, that's Satan. That's what he's about. That's his agenda. That's his strategy. That's his plan and purpose and passion for your life. He said, on the other hand, I've come to not steal, not kill, not destroy, even though I would be perfectly just in doing it. He said, I've come to give life. And not just life here, but eternal life. And it's a gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, by grace are you saved. Saved from what? Saved from the same eternal fate of Satan and the angels that rebelled against him. For by grace you are saved through faith. Faith in what? Faith in what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. He says, it's not of yourself. It's not by living a good enough life. He says, it's the gift of God. He goes on to say, not by works so that no one can boast. And then he says, that's just where it starts. He said, I want to give life to the full. He said, I want you to experience life as you were intended to experience it. I want to bless you. I want to prosper you. I, I want to be with you when you walk through the valleys and, and teach you how powerful I am and, and how I can give you peace even in the valley. I want to take you to the mountaintops. I want to live life with you. I want to have an intimate relationship with you of love. But it's your choice. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning. 
with this truth. Read it with me. I get to choose who controls my life. Say it again. I get to choose who controls my life. Now, you got two choices. The thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy, or the Savior who comes to give life and give life to the fool. Only two choices. There aren't any other choices. That's it. You know what the unimaginable tragedy is? So often we're choosing the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Oh, I like the way that sounds. Oh, I like that. That looks good. I'd like to have some of that. Oh, I'd like to feel that. Who are you going to choose? Let's bow our heads. Who are you going to choose? Who will you choose to lead you to eternal life? I think the choice is obvious, Jesus who loved us so much that he was willing to come down here to live in the squalor of our world and culture, to be abused, to be murdered by us. And yet the first words out of his mouth on the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you're just starting this whole investigation into a relationship with God or an understanding of, of who he is in life and how he wants to relate to you and everything. Well, here's the starting point. God loves you so much he died for you. And he wants to give you, not make you earn, not clean up your life first. He wants to give you, even right now, complete forgiveness of everything you've ever done. And he wants to give you the promise of eternal life. He wants to actually adopt you as one of his children. John 1.12 says, Yet to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Imagine that. He wants to make you his son. He wants to make you his daughter. And the only thing he requires of it is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Every head's bowed, no one's looking around, please, just for a minute. You're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never received this gift. But right now, you just feel this presence. You feel the voice of God, the presence of God, bearing witness with your spirit that, that he's brought you here to receive this gift. No one's looking around. Well, I won't embarrass you in any way. But right now, you know that I'm talking to you. Just so I know whether the need is here or not, would you just simply raise your hand and say, that's me, Pastor, that's me. I need to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've never done it. That's me, yes. You can put your hand down. I see, yes. Anyone else? That's me, yes. You can put your hand down. Anyone else? Yes, you can put your hand down. Anyone else? Yes, you can put your hand down. Yeah. Hands going up. Anyone else? We don't want to miss anyone. God's spirit is moving here today. It's not Pete Tokar. I'm not eloquent enough of speech to, to have convinced you of anything. God is reaching out to you right now because he loves you. And right now, he's inviting you to receive this gift, and all you have to do is ask for it. That's all. That's it. Just ask for it. Say, so I don't know how to do it. Well, here's a prayer you can use. It's not magical or anything, but here's some words I'll make up. God... I want your forgiveness. God, I do believe you exist. 
And God, I do want to spend eternity with you. And God, I admit to you that I have not lived a perfect life, that I have offended you, and I have not lived and treated other people the way always I should have treated them, and I know I've done some things I shouldn't have done. God, I want your forgiveness. I want to be adopted as your child. And, and as best as I understand what this pastor has said, the only way to do that is for me to put my faith in what Jesus has already done. So God, and Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you came to this earth, that you died, were buried, and on the third day rose again. And I get it now, because Jesus, just because you were the only one who lived a perfect life, you were the only one who could have been a sacrifice for sin. And you were the only one who was willing to die for sin. So God has now given you alone the authority to forgive my sin. And so Jesus, as best as I understand what this pastor is talking about, today I put my trust in you. Today I call upon the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. And Jesus, adopt me into the family of God. Make me God's child. Now the Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I'm going to switch to believers. Believers, someone is controlling your life, and you're allowing them to control it. Now I I know you don't really even understand that process, and that's what we're going to uncover over the next several weeks. But right now, can we start with, let's say that phrase one more time. I get to choose who controls my life. I hope that as we study God's word, you will be persuaded to trust he who has come to give life and give life to the full.